Jesus is the bread of life who gives eternal life to those who believe in him and offends those who do not. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Folks, uh, before we get started here today, I need to tell you about a little mishap I had this week. I was cleaning my glasses. Probably you don't hear stories uh, start out too often like that. I had a mishap. I was cleaning my glasses, right? But there I was, and these were, uh, actually, these are my old glasses. I know you think, but they look exactly like the new ones. I know, that was by design, right? So anybody kind of gets stuck in your ways, and you like things just the way they were a certain way, right? So anyway, I was cleaning my glasses. I took them off, and I was cleaning. The, uh, one of the sides of it there just snapped off, and I tried to put it back together, and it wasn't happening. I couldn't fix it, you know? So I have to resort to the old glasses temporarily here while I'm getting some new ones. Now, you might so what? What does that have to do with anything? Here is what it is. You know, over time, our prescriptions change a little bit, right? And so these older glasses, well, they're definitely a whole lot better than not having glasses on at all. But one of the things that means is is sometimes it can affect things a little bit. And so if you see me kind of looking at my notes and kind of going like this or doing this or getting a strange angle or something, that's what's going on, okay? So I just want to let you know that's what's happening here this morning. Well, anyway, folks here, um, as you know, uh, the UK's Queen Elizabeth II died this past week, and I have been watching some programs and, and reading about her life, and I like hearing about some of the personal anecdotes that people have shared, uh, which show the human side of the Queen, and I especially enjoyed this story about a time when an American hiker did not recognize the Queen. We're told the story of how Queen Elizabeth handled an encounter with an American hiker who did not recognize her, recounted by a former bodyguard who was with her that day, revealed the fun-loving side of her personality that the public rarely saw. The monarch was out in the hills near her Scottish castle at Balmoral when two U.S. tourists on a walking holiday approached and one of them engaged her in a conversation, said formal royal protection officer Richard Griffin, known as Dick. The hiker asked the queen where she lived. So she said, London, adding that she had a holiday home just over the hill and had been visiting the area for more than 80 years since she was a little girl. She did not say she was referring to Balmoral. Aware that the castle was in the vicinity, the hiker then asked her if she had ever met the queen. And quick as a flash, she said, I haven't, but Dick here meets her regularly. (laughs) The hiker then asked Griffin what the monarch was like in person. And Griffin related, well, because I was with her a very long time and I knew I could tease her, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times. But she's got a lovely sense of humor. Delighted, the hiker then put his arm around Griffin's shoulder and asked if he could have a picture of the two of them together. (laughs) And before I could see what was happening, he he gets his camera and gives it to the queen and says, Can you take a picture of us? (laughs) The queen obliged. And then Griffin took the camera and took a picture of her with the pair of hikers. Later, Griffin said the queen told him, 
I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to friends in America and hopefully someone tells him who I am. Well, I have no doubt they eventually discovered who she was and they got quite a laugh out of it. Now, that is an amusing story about an earthly queen who was not recognized. But today we want to continue, though, with a story about an eternal king, the king of kings, who was not recognized for who he was. But this one is not an amusing story. So we continue then looking at unique, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, going through as our source here this harmony of the Gospels called One Perfect Life, which puts all of the Gospel accounts together into one flowing chronological account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, For today then, the question, do you also want to go away? Do you also want to go away? We're in John chapter 6, verses 41 through 71. John chapter 6, verses 41 through 71. And here is the key idea that I want us to take away from the message today. Jesus is the bread of life who gives eternal life to those who believe in him and offends those who do not, those who do not believe in him. Before we look at our text, then, a little context. Jesus had fed 5,000 men with two fish and five loaves of bread, all total probably fifteen or 20,000 people. And the next day, then, he declared to the people that he is the bread of life, who gives eternal life to all who come to him, and he will, without fail, raise up everyone who comes to him on the last day. And apparently, with him saying such radical uh, things as that, the people then did not find his feeding of the 5,000, or all of his other miracles for that matter, as sufficient evidence to believe such an astounding claim as Jesus was making about himself. Sure, Jesus, yeah, you fed 5,000 one time, but what about Moses? You know, Moses fed millions of people over a period of 40 years. Do something like that, and maybe we'll believe you then, Jesus. But Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief, and he references himself then as the true bread from heaven. Manna was a physical bread from heaven, but Jesus, he is the true bread. He is the spiritual bread from heaven. So listen to this account of Moses and the manna from Exodus 16. And see if you don't hear a familiar theme that we are about to read in John's gospel. But first, this account from Exodus 16. It says, They set out from Elam, that is the Israelites. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, 
Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Was there a word that kind of stood out to you as we were listening? What word was that? Grumbling, right? Grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, grumble is one of those words that sounds like what it's describing, doesn't it? Kind of has that grumble, 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 right? But no matter how God graciously provided for the people and delivering them from slavery in Egypt, no matter what he did, it was never enough, and there was always grumbling, grumble, grumble, grumble. Now, of course, we are not like that at all, are we? We don't grumble at it. We never do, right? We understand. We have experienced God's grace, his provision. We never grumble about what God is doing in our lives, right, or not doing as we think, right? Well, unfortunately, we're no different sometimes than from them, are we? Well, let's look then at the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 41. It says, The Jews then complained about him. Jesus has declared, He is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven. It says, The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which come down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So here we see what murmuring, grumbling, grumbling, right? The religious authorities and the experts in the law were grumbling, murmuring because of Jesus' proclamation about his heavenly origin. I mean, it's a pretty astounding claim, isn't it? What's that? Like their ancestors in the wilderness, they murmured, grumble, grumble, grumble. Now, in all fairness, their thinking seemed logical enough, right? It's like, you come from heaven. Wait a minute, we know who you, you're the son of Joseph. And you're right, we know your parents. You couldn't be from heaven. But they were ignorant, though, of his true origin and his divine nature. They did not recognize him for who he was. But notice, Jesus made no attempt to correct their ignorance other than to rebuke them for their murmuring and to point them to the drawing and the teaching ministry of God. He says, without God's help, any assessment of him as God's messenger would be faulty. And no one can come to Jesus or believe on him without divine help. Because people are so ensnared or trapped in sin and unbelief that unless God draws them out, they are hopeless, hopelessly lost. But this drawing, this drawing out to faith is not limited to a few. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, I will draw all men to myself. Now that does not mean that all people will be saved but rather that all manner of people, that is both Jews and Gentiles, will be drawn out and will be saved. They will come to him. And all those who draw, he draws out, all those who are saved will also be resurrected. We looked at that last week in Jesus' message here as the bread of life. And in support of this, of this doctrine of salvation by God's grace, Jesus then cited the Old Testament And this quotation, they shall all be taught by God, is drawn from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13, and Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, where this teaching of God refers to an inner work that God does that predisposes people then to accept the truth, to hear what is saying, and are drawn then to respond to Jesus then in true faith. So everyone who listens to and learns from God, will come to believe in Jesus. And as a person is confronted by Jesus and hears his words and sees his deeds, God the Father works within him or her. And most assuredly, truly, truly, Jesus says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. You know, and that's the thing, again, I'd like to to point out. When Jesus says that those who believe in him have everlasting life. He doesn't say you will be given. It says you have it right now. So every one of us, if you put your trust in Christ, you have eternal life. You will not be given eternal life. You have eternal life right now, and it's God's gift. It's God's grace. It's important then for us to know that biblically then, and this is for all who believe, 
It's important then for us to understand what believe means scripturally. To believe scripturally doesn't just mean to acknowledge something in our minds intellectually. That's a part of it. But rather what? It's the heart. It's the whole person. It's trust. It's confidence. It's faith. It's a trusting into of the whole person, into the person and the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also then, that tense of that verb to believe in that original Greek language of the New Testament, it indicates belief then as a continuing trust then. So the person who believes biblically is a belief, a whole person trust that is characterized by a continuing trust. That person who believes has everlasting life. You know, when the Israelites wandered in the desert, they were dependent on the manna, the bread from heaven, to sustain their physical lives. In time then, the Israelites, they came to loathe it and complain about it, right? And ultimately, though, they died physically. But Jesus is the bread from heaven, and he is a bread of a different kind. And Jesus says a person who eats this bread, the bread of Jesus, will not die. Now, yes, people will still die physically, but they will never die spiritually. They have eternal life. And so since Jesus, then, is the bread of life, we might ask, well, then, what does eating the bread mean? How do we eat the bread of life who is Jesus? And I think while this passage does shed some light on the significance of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is not talking about taking communion here, right? We don't eat his, his flesh and drink his blood. In the sense, when we take communion, we're saved. That's not what's like That is a communion is what? It is a memorial. It's a remembrance of his sacrifice. So eating his, his bread here, his flesh, isn't communion. It's what? It's believing in him. It's faith and trust in him. It's a figure of speech, then, meaning to believe in him, like the figures he has used before of coming to him, listening to him, and seeing him. All of these are aspects of believing in him, trusting in him. And when one eats of this bread, eating of this bread is to live forever. Jesus says this bread is his flesh, which he will give for the life of the world. For salvation then comes by the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God. And by his death, he came to give life to the world. Picking up there from there, it says, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, 
and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So there was murmuring among the people, and now we see quarreling, arguing. As often happened, Jesus' teaching was not understood. And an argument started among them about what he meant by this. And their perception remained at a purely literal, physical level. And they wondered, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? By the way, did you know one of the reasons in the early days of the church, one of the reasons why the Romans persecuted the church is because of a misunderstanding about uh, the, the ceremony or the, of, of, or the ordinance of communion, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They thought that Christians were cannibals. Right? They didn't understand that it was talking about belief, believing in Jesus, and they misunderstood communion as something else here. But here they said, so how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And this revelation then by Jesus is marked out as being very important by the fourth use of this phrase, most assuredly or truly, truly, perhaps you have. The people were thinking in literal terms, of eating his physical flesh and drinking his physical blood. And the Jews, of course, were commanded in the law not to consume any blood, and yet the blood here then is the means of atonement. And it is the blood, the shedding of Jesus' blood, that brings forgiveness and brings life. No doubt when Jesus said these things, Jesus' hearers must have been shocked and confused you say this, not people would be shocked and confused in our day, right? Just saying this and hearing this. So they were shocked and confused by what Jesus was saying here. But this mystery of understanding is unlocked here and that Jesus was speaking of making atonement for his death and giving life to those who trust in him by faith. And that faith is Christ, faith in Christ's death brings eternal life. And, they, and then later, the bodily resurrection. Just as food and drink sustain physical life, so Jesus, the true spiritual food and drink, sustains his followers spiritually and gives them spiritual life. Those who partake of Christ, then, enjoy a mutual, abiding relationship with Christ. Abide, that's an old-time Bible word, right? What does that mean? It, remain, it means to remain vitally connected to him. To abide is to remain in, to be vitally connected to Christ then. So the one who believes remains in Christ, abides, remains vitally connected to him. And Christ remains vitally connected to that believer. So a believer then enjoys intimacy with Jesus and eternal security in Jesus. Told to go on, therefore... Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. 
The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So we see murmuring and quarreling and now complaining. As the people heard this teaching, they found it to be totally unacceptable. We can't accept these words, Jesus. This is crazy. But besides the hostile Jewish religious leaders, there were many of the Galilean disciples then who began to turn away from him. You know, when we read in the scriptures about disciples and disciples of Jesus, first of all, there's a distinction between the many disciples, many students, many followers of Jesus, and the twelve. We sometimes call them the disciples, the twelve. But even among the so there were disciples, the twelve, but then there were the disciples there. And so many of these general disciples among them began to turn away. Now, if you were a true disciple of Jesus, you truly believe. But there were some disciples, followers, who were following Jesus. They didn't truly believe, and they began to turn away then from him when he said such hard things as this. You're saying, this Jesus here, you're supposed to be our Messiah, our deliverer. They were thinking in political terms. But they saw that he was not going to deliver them from Rome. He was not going to deliver them in the way they wanted. They're saying, well, he might be a great healer, but now he's starting to say some crazy stuff here. This is a hard saying. And when they said hard saying, it didn't didn't just mean difficult to figure out intellectually. Hard, it means harsh and offensive. Jesus, this is offensive what you're saying now. And you're not doing what we wanted or expected of you. So they began to turn away from him. But Jesus, of course, knew his audience. He was well aware of what they were thinking and that they were grumbling and complaining against him. And Jesus says, oh, does this offend you? Does this offend you? He knew it did. Now, that word translated offend here is in that original language. See if you can hear what it sounds like, what what, what English word we might have gotten from it. But that word is scandalizai. Scandal, scandalous, right? From which we get our word scandal or scandalous, scandalize. How scandalous, how offensive what Jesus was saying here. Eat his flesh. And drink his blood as if, right? But Jesus declared that his ascension, that is his crucifixion and his resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven from which he had come, all of that would vindicate him. And after his ascension, Jesus would give the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit poured out into the world gives life then to those who believe But without the Spirit, people are utterly unable to understand who Jesus is and the significance of his words and his works. So the crowd then saw his words as hard, as offensive, as scandalous. But Jesus says actually his words are spirit and life. 
And that is by the work of the Holy Spirit, then a person who working in a person, Jesus' words, his truth, provides spiritual life to people. So we're told then, from that time, many of his disciples, not the twelve, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? So people were going. They were going away. See, the life that Jesus gives must be received by faith. But from the start, Jesus knew which followers were believer and which ones were not. And Jesus had taught that divine power was necessary for people to come to faith. And so this apostasy, which literally means a falling away, this apostasy, this falling away here should not be surprising. Believers who remain with Jesus give evidence of the Father's work in their hearts. But the unbelieving crowds are evidence that the flesh profits nothing. And so his rejecting their desire to make him their political king, his demand for personal faith, his teaching on the atonement, his stress on total human inability and on salvation as a work of God, all of these things proved to be unacceptable and offensive for many people. And so they gave up being his disciples. So Jesus then asked the twelve, Do you also want to go away? See, the, the twelve were, no doubt, they were affected by the apostasy, the falling away of the many. But Jesus used that occasion then to test and to refine their faith. See, even they did not yet fully understand his words either, and they would not until after the resurrection. But they weren't going to go away, though. It says, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Holy One, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So here we see murmuring, quarreling, complaining, and then going, many people going away, but others staying, including the twelve. So Peter, the spokesman for the group, gave his confession of faith. He says, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes you're, you're walking with Christ and you're going through a hard time and it's pain, and you don't understand what's going on. You're struggling, but where are you going to go? Who else has words of eternal life, right? So the path may be difficult, but he was convinced that Jesus' words lead to life. 
So Peter also then says, We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One. You are the Son of God. And as Matthew notes, Peter knew this. Why? Because he was especially insightful and brilliant? No. What? Because the work of, the, of, of God, of God the Father in him, that it had been revealed to him. But then Jesus asks, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And of course he was speaking of Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, and yet he was a member of the twelve. And no doubt that revelation confused them at that time. Wouldn't you have been a little confused by that? You're seeing all these people leaving, but you know, you're not, you, the 12, we're not going anywhere, we're staying here. And then Jesus says, one of you will leave, though. So no doubt it confused him. But later, though, the disciples would reflect on that prophecy and I think then be strengthened in their faith. See, Judas was a tragic figure. He was influenced by Satan, but yet he was responsible, though, too, for his own evil choices. And perhaps there is a message in there for us today that we should not be surprised when trusted persons within the church are later exposed as false. Now, it's never a pleasant thing, but the scriptures make it clear that we are to watch diligently. And therefore, we should not be surprised then when it does happen sometimes. This is a hard saying. Hard saying. Offensive things, Jesus said. Are these words here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Are they the only harsh words Jesus ever spoke? Are they the only offensive things he ever said? Or did he say perhaps some other things people found and find offensive today? Did he say anything that people might find offensive here in our day? Maybe even here in our church this morning. Oh, you bet he did, didn't he? I put together a list of just a few, all right? Rejoice in persecution. Hmm. If you are angry with someone, you are guilty of murder and deserving of hell. Hmm. If you look with the intent to lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Some who say to me will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he will say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. How about this one? Let the dead bury their dead. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Take up your cross and follow me. Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but rather fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life will gain it. But I have saved a couple... 
that are perhaps the most offensive to our culture here today for last. You ready? How about this one? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus alone is the way to heaven. And of course, though, the most offensive thing of all, the unpardonable sin in our culture today, he dares to question the new sexual orthodoxy, which is not new at all, actually, is it? When speaking on the topic of marriage, Jesus affirms that marriage was instituted by God and is a covenant between one man and one woman for life. And related to that, and sex is God's design, and it is to be expressed exclusively within the confines of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, and anything other than that is... Sin. Do you also want to go away? Folks, it's going to get harder to follow Jesus in our culture, isn't it? And it grieves me deeply to say that America is now a post-Christian nation. And that does not bode well for our nation's spiritual future. But... I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for the church. Oh, I know it's going to get harder to truly follow Christ in our culture. But I think that with that will come great blessing for the faithful church, though, too. So whatever path our country may take, let us determine that we will stay faithful to the straight and narrow path of God's word. So what? Jesus is the bread of life who gives eternal life to those who believe in him and offends those who do not believe in him. So I'll conclude by just asking the question, do you also want to go away? Or are you in this? Are you in with Jesus? No matter what he says, even if sometimes it's hard to accept, and even if it means it brings persecution and a hostility of a culture against us, do you want to stick to him and to his word, to stick to that straight and narrow path I do. After all, to whom else shall we go? He alone has the words of eternal life. So let us, therefore, be faithful to him and to his word, no matter what. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have a Savior who has delivered us, has saved us fully. Thank you that through our faith in him, We have eternal life. And one day you will raise us. You will raise all who believe in you. Lord, as it gets harder to follow you in our culture, I pray that rather than dreading that or 
complaining or grumbling about it, Lord, that it would spur us on to cling all the more closely to you, to to remain, to abide in you, to find our strength and our hope in you, to remain faithful to your word. Give us wisdom, Lord, to navigate the difficulties and the challenges that are coming and will come. May we remain faithful to you and to your word, we pray. No matter how hard the saying, may we remain faithful to your words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.